Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. This is Eyes Left. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is your host, Mike Preisner. Uh, our co-host, Spencer Rapone, is out again this episode. But before you turn it off because you miss Spencer so much, you should stick around because I have a story for you today that I know you're really going to want to hear. One of the hidden histories of the Iraq War is at the very beginning of the war, there were quite a number of soldiers who filed for conscientious objection, who deserted their posts, who refused to go to Iraq, or who went to Iraq and refused to go back. A much smaller number of those soldiers, uh, in fact, two that I know of, actually went to jail rather than go back to Iraq. Both were non-commissioned officers, both were in combat units, both had already done quite a bit of time in the country and refused redeployment. One of those is someone named Sergeant Camillo Mejia. Uh, Camillo is probably one of the more well-known war resistors of the Iraq War era. He had a very high-profile trial. It was widely covered in the U.S. media. He was sentenced to nine months in jail, which was uh, widely publicized. Uh, Amnesty International came to his defense. There was a a movement around his release. When he got out, he was a very well-known speaker. He testified at the Winter Soldier testimonies. He traveled around the country telling his story. He published a book called The Road from Al-Ramadi. And he's someone whose story I really think everyone should check out. Camilo Mejia's story is quite a heroic one and a really hidden piece of the true story of the Iraq War. But there was another soldier who did something very similar as Camillo, who in fact was sentenced to 15 months in jail rather than go on a deployment to Iraq. And his name is Kevin Benderman. Now, Kevin Benderman's story, his story is much less known. You can only find a few short interviews with him online. He's done very few speaking events, but it's a story that I've always thought was one of the most important stories of the early years of the Iraq war. And when I met Kevin, I think back in 2009 or 2010, and I face-to-face heard his accounting of what happened to him, I was shocked that I didn't even know about it. And I was fairly active in the veterans anti-war movement at the time. I couldn't believe that no one really knew about this guy who went to jail for 15 months uh, because he refused to go to Iraq after his first deployment. And so here we are in 2020. The story is much more forgotten, but it's one that is very, very instructive for people serving today and for those who want to know the true story of the Iraq war. Before we start, here's a clip from NPR from back in 2005 when Kevin Benderman was first court-martialed before he had been uh, convicted and sentenced. A general court-martial is being prepared for an army sergeant who refused to deploy to Iraq with his unit in January. Sergeant Kevin Benderman of the 3rd Infantry Division has more than 10 years of service in the Army, including a previous tour in Iraq. As NPR's Eric Westervelt reports, he's now seeking a discharge as a conscientious objector. When the 3rd Infantry Division's 3rd Forward Support Battalion left Hunter Army Airfield for the Middle East last month, unit member Kevin Benderman wasn't on the plane. The 40-year-old Army sergeant says he slowly came to believe that, quote, war is the greatest form of wrong. His change of heart began, he says, during the 2003 invasion of Iraq when he was with the 4th Infantry Division. It was his first time experiencing combat and its aftermath firsthand. That has made me realize just how senseless and inhumane war is. Sergeant Benderman comes from a family with a long history of military service. He's served for nearly a decade, 
But during that six-month combat tour in Iraq, Benderman says he encountered mass graves, devastated towns, and maimed children, the ravages of war that he says years of Army training didn't prepare him for. And everybody says, you know, after nine years of service, how can you do this after, well, it's like this to me. There's things that happen in war that don't, that you don't get trained on. You know, it's just like the young girl that was standing there on the side of the road with her arm burned to a crisp, begging for someone to help her, her and her mother. You know, they don't, you can't have that in training. The U.S. Army sees it differently. 3rd Infantry Division officials say the non-commissioned officer should have deployed with his unit while his conscientious objector application was under review. The Army has charged Sergeant Benderman, a Bradley fighting vehicle mechanic and training supervisor, with violations that, if convicted, could result in a loss of all pay and benefits and jail time. Captain Chet Gregg is an Army staff judge advocate at Fort Stewart. He's been charged with Article 87, a missing movement through design, and Article 85, desertion with intent to avoid hazardous duty. He faces potentially up to seven years confinement and a dishonorable discharge if he was found guilty of those things and convicted. The Army is now moving ahead with a general court-martial, the most severe. No trial date has been set. Sergeant Benderman's conscientious objector application, which is being considered separately from the desertion charges, will be ruled on in coming weeks. He's applied for an objector status requesting discharge from the Army. Soldiers applying for objector status are relatively rare in today's all-volunteer army, but applications have nearly tripled since 2001, when there were just 23. Last year, 67 soldiers sought objector status. The army approved nearly half of them. When Benderman announced his application, his company first sergeant called him a coward. In an email, his army chaplain said he was ashamed of him. But another chaplain, after a lengthy interview, wrote that he thought Benderman was sincere in his beliefs. And Benderman says some of the few soldiers still around Fort Stewart have offered him cautious support. They do not come right out and say they support me, but when they talk to me off to the side, you know, they're giving me support on my opinion and my stance. Some soldiers probably feel a little bit betrayed by you if they've served with Well, you. I'm sure that there's a, a group of people out there that think, that I may be a coward or I'm doing this just to get out of combat, but that's not it. I mean, ultimately, I want everyone to get out of combat and never go to it again, ever. Sergeant Benderman now spends his days working with the rear detachment at Fort Stewart, Georgia, doing minor tasks. After work, he talks with his wife, his lawyer, and prepares for the legal fight ahead. Benderman says, I'm not running from anything I have to say. Shortly after that interview, Kevin was convicted of desertion. He was sentenced to 15 months in military prison, demoted to private. And then after his sentence, he was dishonorably discharged with none of his benefits uh, and then worked as a truck driver for several years uh, before getting his uh, social security disability. And now I am very honored to have Kevin joining us on Eyes Left. He's calling in from where he lives in Russellville, Alabama. You'll have to excuse the Skype connection because as he told me, there is very poor internet where he lives. But it was uh, very much worth it to get this interview with him. We started the conversation with how he ended up in the military to begin with. Well, um, you know, I'm, I was born in Alabama. And as a kid, we used to see the National Guard for their weekend training or their two-week, you know, out of the year training. And I always thought that was fascinating. And we always got the little plastic green army men and the army trucks and tanks that went along with those things when I was a kid to play with, my brother and I. 
and uh, my my dad was a veteran too. And uh, had a, I have a family history dating all the way back to the American Revolution when uh, William Benderman is listed as a patriot that fought in the revolution in, ten- in Columbia, Tennessee. So there's been a Benderman that's worn uh, a uniform for the, the United States military uniform for about every conflict this country's ever been in. Uh, wow. And so that, um, you know, that I'm sure played a big role in kind of shaping your consciousness about joining the military. Was there anything else in your life that, you know, led you to make that decision to join? And you joined, I guess, you know, early on in your life, you, you know, quite a while ago, huh? Well, uh, I originally joined in 1987 mm-hmm. uh, when I was 22 years old. There is a large history, you know, family pride and that kind of thing in the area that I was raised when it comes to military service. You know, that's looked on honor and respect and a lot of pride. So when I got out and I got out, and I took it up, you know, I took up a job on a skill that I had before I went in the Army the first time, which was installing floors. And so I uh, decided to do that for a while, but then. The situation became such where, you know, for a lot of different reasons, that I no longer wanted to do that. And then I decided that I would re-enter the military and go ahead and retire and get a good retirement out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd already invested, well, four years active, and then I had the four years of individual ready reserve that you have to sign up for on your initial enlistment. And so I figured, well, they would add that in, and I could retire a little bit earlier in life, which... I think everyone would like to do that if they could, you know, so. Right. No, I definitely uh, understand that. And so, so you go back in in 2000 and then not long after you're back in the military, the 9-11 attacks happen. Um, I, you know, remember what that was like. I was, had just gotten out of boot camp when the 9-11 attacks happened. So we're both of the generation that was uh, joining at a very different kind of phase in the U.S. military and what it was doing around the world. Um, What was going through your mind at that time when you, you know, you had joined in basically peacetime uh, and then all of a sudden it seemed like things were about to change really fast. Well, uh, it was June of 2000 when I re-entered the military and uh, I, after going back through basic training and then going back to the the AIT for the job I chose the second time I went in was a a six month period in total because I was a Bradley mechanic and uh, we just were in there making sure all the vehicles were taken care of and our scouts and tankers were out doing their thing, you know, their training and getting all their stuff taken care of. When we all got the news that September 11th had happened. And so we all just kind of looked at each other and then said, well, this is it. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I knew this is a very strong possibility when I raised my right hand. I mean, I never was, oh, well, God under the illusion that joining the military was anything other than a, a fighting force. So, you know, I, I mean, there are benefits that you get from entering the military, but I didn't count that as the first, the, the primary reason I entered. I knew what I signed up for and this was it, you know. Right. And so, you know, 9-11 happens and then it's like, oh, you know, we're going to Afghanistan. But then, then you get orders to deploy to Iraq. Uh, to be a part of the invasion force. And, you know, you probably remember that as things were building, George W. Bush was talking about how, you know, the fight against terror and the global war on terror, we have to go take out Saddam Hussein and liberate the Iraqi people and all that. What were you thinking at that time 
all of a sudden there was this big shift. You know, it was, we have to stop the people that did this on 9-11. Iraq had no role in 9-11. No Iraqis played any role. Saddam Hussein played no role. Were, was that kind of entering your mind at that moment when you knew that the Iraq war was coming up and that you may be having to go to it? At the time, I did think, well, why are we going there? Because, as you said, it was, the attacks originated from Afghanistan and Iraq had nothing to do with it. But at that time, it was like, you know, mine is not the reason why. Mine is just a do or die. So take my salute and, you know, move out smartly. Yeah, after we got there and uh, the very first mission that my unit received, I was with uh, Charlie Troop. And uh, the very first mission that we received was to go guard an oil well and storage <laughs> facility where we were the only one there. And we spent about two weeks there. And I kept wondering to myself, why are we even here? I mean, what? no one's here but us, you know? And so, but at that point, I was still kind of ambivalent about what, what we were doing. But I was decided to just see what happened. And so we moved on from there to some different places. And uh, the more we did and the more we were doing things that were just made no sense to me in a military tactical or strategic i just couldn't figure it out and so i started having my doubts about midway through my tour there you know and so just to give uh listeners just a little better idea about what what kind of stuff you were doing into korea and when you moved on to that other city you know the you were a mechanic but in the the first year of the iraq war which you know we were there at the same time all jobs kind of changed you know it, you remember that they were like, oh, we only need a small number of troops to do this mission. And then very quickly, uh, it turned out that there was a completely insufficient number of troops. And so everyone just got repurposed. You know, everyone from intelligence jobs to cooks to mechanics uh, were doing very different roles than just what their you know MOS was supposed to be. So what was kind of your, what kind of roles did you find yourself in in Iraq that was kind of different from what you went through training for at AIT? Well, um, the thing that I found that I had nothing to do with was to be take custody of uh, the people that we had captured, you know, and transporting them from the the front the the front area back to the rear detainment facility, mm -hmm. you know. And and we would go behind the scouts because I went forward with the scouts, and and if you know what I mean, everybody should know what scouts do. They you know they're like the forward you know, they go forward. So I would have to go forward with them to make sure that they didn't need any maintenance support. And, you know, I'd, I'd be following them and they would be at a checkpoint or something. I'd be assigned to a checkpoint with them. And yeah, we, we got shot at more than once while we were back up there supporting those guys. So, so you were, so you were a mechanic that very quickly became, uh, uh basically an infantry soldier. <laughs> well, the thing that really stood out, we were not, fighting any kind of an organized militia or military force whatsoever. We were arousting grandmas and grandpas out of bed at 3 a.m. And at that time, I started thinking, you know, there is no need for me to be pointing an M16 to this little 90-pound, 70-year-old woman as we roused her out of her bed at 3 a.m. I said, this is I, never in my life I would be asked to do that in any capacity as a soldier of the United States. That was beyond the pale for me. Another thing that stood out too is that uh, when we first got to that town, we had to clear out a building in the middle of the town 
And so our company commander and the first sergeant wanted to use that as their temporary command post. And while we were there cleaning it up and getting it secured, and there was a bunch of kids from that town that would come to that building that we had taken over. And they would climb, there was about a four foot high little brick wall that was around the building. And they would climb up on that wall and they would laugh. One or two of them would throw a couple of small pebbles and we'd tell them to get off the wall. And while we were uh, installing concertina wire around the perimeter, one day the captain came out of the building and told us that if those kids climbed back up on that wall to shoot them. Wow. I got, you know, I I had a specialist and two or three privates over there. And I just looked at them and like, did I hear that right? And they gave me that look back. And I just looked at the captain and he turned around and walked back into the building. But there was no way I would have shot a nine year old kid. <laughs> That's just, I couldn't believe I heard that. I'm like, what in the hell people? I said, I won't do that. I'd, I'd shoot that captain before I shot one of those small children. <laughs> um, and you would have been justified in doing so. Um, and so you said about halfway through your deployment, you started questioning things. Um, and so like that second half of your deployment, what was really going on with you mentally? All we were doing was harassing the civilian population and we were there to doggone uh, secure the oil fields, which had nothing to do with the, the attacks of September the 11th, 2001. And uh, doing all these things that, like, as I said, I never would have thought as a professional soldier, anyone would have ever asked me to do anything of that nature. But on our march from Kuwait up to Tikrit over to that town called Konakin, we came to a huge storage depot that was full of uh, standard ammunition. You know, it had machine gun rounds, mortar rounds, tank rounds, and a few hand grenades laying around there. And we moved in to secure that. And so the NCO for the mortar platoon sent two of his guys down there, a, a private first class and a private, to start loading those mortars on the truck got down there they had one of them was on the truck and one of them was picking up the mortars and handing it to the other guy and they were stacking them in the truck which is what they should have been doing but then uh sergeant first class kelly comes down there pissing and moaning and raising hell telling them they're moving too slow they need to start throwing those mortars on the truck so you know a pfc and a private they all yes yes sergeant yes sergeant you know and they jump down and start tossing mortars on the truck and one of them landed on the fuse in and it was exploded, and that was our first casualty that I'm aware of, and it was caused by our very own acting first sergeant, a complete idiot. Yeah, I mean, that's a common theme uh, with soldiers' resistance and rebellion, right, is just the incompetence of the people that are in charge of them, the unnecessary risk of life and the lives of others and of civilians by just, like, incompetent, stupid like award chasing officers and high ranking NCOs. Oh, oh yeah, they, they they were extremely, uh, they were childish in their approach to to, to war. It, captain, the one I told you to told us to shoot kids, Captain Mor- uh, Morgado. They brought in this other captain. On the way into our uh, our AO, he um, had saw a horse you know, a statue of some horse that was in the town. And it was a stud horse and it had all the right equipment. And so this idiot told two of our mechanics to go over there and get that horse and cut his genitals off so he can back and put it on his wall. I'm like, this is a fraternity crap that you do in college. This is real, this is real world stuff where people are dying, you know. One of the things, of course, that's making your 
consciousness shift is. You know, you said the whole, the idea of what the mission was about went up in smoke. You know, you were guarding oil fields and that was a very on-the-nose uh, representation of what you're doing there. Then you have this element of your command was just uh, incompetent. They were brutal. They were ordering you to do uh, things that you could never picture yourself doing. Um, you know, they're do, putting people's lives in danger by just being incompetent leaders. And of course, those things are very much things that would make you not want to be a part of it anymore, just for your own self-preservation. Like your life is in the hand of people you very much do not trust. Um, but then there's this other element, and that's that's your recognition of what the war was like for the people that uh, lived in the country. Um, I you know, remember and there was a, an NPR interview you did where you uh, described a, a young girl who was seriously wounded uh, on the side of the road. Um, you know, and, and talk about what, how this element kind of played into your, your moral transformation there. It, it wasn't just that your life was in danger by dumb officers or that you weren't going to get killed for George W. Bush's oil uh, contracts. It's there is this other thing playing out in your consciousness as well, and that was like the the impact on on people that um, you know you had no reason to you know see as your enemy. Again, I mean, I don't want to blow my own horn, but you met me in person. I mean, and you've seen how big I am. I had no business over there harassing those tiny little people, the grandparents and children, you know, and uh, I just couldn't. My, command structure of the country that I swore an oath to would ever put me in a position to do something of that nature. That little girl that I described, we passed her up on the side of the road and I don't I, I don't know if that woman was her mother or her sister or her aunt or who she was, but she was crying. The little girl was crying. They were waving at us and we just drove right on by them, you know, left her laying there. We were over there hurting them, you know, the things that we were doing wasn't stopping any of the people that did shoot at us but and that's that was a big part of why i said i wanted no part of it it's just not right right and and probably not it, not only did it not stop the people who were shooting at you you know doing the the types of operations you were doing but it kind of also probably i know this was my experience it it kind of made it make sense you know like to put yourself in the shoes of the people that were being raided, you know, the imagine having someone come into your grandmother's house and pointing a rifle in her face and pushing her around. Um, were you starting to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the Iraqi people and what you would be doing if your home in Alabama got raided by people from another country and were abusing your your family members like that? Uh, of course. Uh, I mean, there would be no, no way I would stand by. And I mean, that that just added fuel to the fire. We weren't stopping the people that were shooting. We were just creating more people that wanted to shoot at us because we were harassing innocent people and a lot of a lot of incidents uh, killing them. I mean, there was a guy that was just driving along and we didn't know that we had put up those concrete uh, barriers across the highway and he slammed into it, you know, and he panicked and kept uh, driving toward the thing and they just shot him with a 50 caliber machine gun. I mean, killed him right there, you know. And that guy was just trying to get home from wherever he was. It was just an empty car. No weapons in the vehicle or whatsoever. And I mean, just blew him away. When I got on that plane, I was processing all of it, I guess, you know, and I was just glad to be going home and 
And but then while I was at home, you know, I was sitting here, sitting there thinking of all this stuff that we had done and that they were going to send us back and expect me to do the same thing over again. And I was just, I can't do that. There is no way that I can do that. That the people that they were asking me to do that to had absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with any attacks on this country. It was all a lie. They sent us over there based on nothing but lies and their own greed and personal enrichment. So, so you're back and you're, you've decided that you can't go again. And this is, early, this is early on in the Iraq war. So it's obvious that there's going to be more deployments. I mean, things had, by the time you left, things were just starting to heat up big time. So it was obvious to you that things were going to keep going. It, it, you were, even if you got out of the next deployment, there was going to be another one after that. Um, and so you had you had made up your mind at at that time that you you know that you weren't going to go again. I know you changed units. You got sent to the Third Infantry Division. Um, when did you when did you actually and what was it that made you really decide like you were actually not going to go? You were going to file for CO. You were going to do whatever it took to not go on another deployment. What? How did you come to that really major decision? Because. You know, you're you're a non-commissioned officer. You had people under you. You had been in the military for quite a long time. You went into the military so you could retire. So you didn't actually have that many years left until you were going to retire, which is the whole point of you going back in the military to begin with. But then at some point, you decided that you're going to do this very major thing, which was refuse to go back when you probably could have just sucked it up and gone back again and maybe done one other deployment and then been able to get out. What that seems like a very profound decision. How did how did you come to that? Well, after I got back and I, you know, went through the whirlwind of uh, transferring from Fort Hood to Fort Stewart, and and getting my, you know, my wife and getting all of our household moved, and uh, you know, just had time to think about different things and different aspects and the lies that we were told to get us involved in uh, into that invasion of Iraq. I was just not going to do it anymore. I wasn't going back over there to harass the civilian population of that country uh, for no for no good reason. I mean, it's just, it was against everything that I ever was, and I just couldn't take part in it anymore. Right, and so, so you filed your conscience objector packet, which uh, is a right for all soldiers uh, to do. How did your command react? Your CO, your chaplain, what did, what did they respond when you submitted this CO packet? Well, they all just rubber stamped their opposition to it without even reading it or considering it. And I had to fight with them for months and months and months. But the, the thing of all that is, I put in my paperwork for that. Right. And on that Friday, the uh, lieutenant colonel, the battalion commander, told me I need to go report to the battalion first sergeant or sergeant major at 1500 as soon as the formation was over. Roger, sir. So I go talk to the sergeant major. And he told me to go back to my house and to bring out my packet and return it to the rear detachment CO. So that's what I did. I went home. And started working on that, which I lived uh, three quarters of a mile away from the front door of my company's office, you know, the, the office area for the company. And I stayed there all weekend with my wife and no one called. No one came to my place. And so I reported in on Monday morning. And when I went in there, they had 
paperwork to charge me with uh, desertion, uh, grand larceny against the government, disrespecting a superior commission officer and uh, some other trumped up charge. And so away that nightmare went, you know, it started there. And so, I was like, so, so you put so you put in your CEO packet and then, you know, th they initially rejected it, though. Is that right? I had the rejection as soon as before the ink was dry. I mean, right. I, it, it was barely out of my hand before they said, nope. I mean, and I was like, it's usually, it's usually a long drawn out process. And they were, they sent it through four, uh, four levels of command for the rear detachment and had it back to me the next day, you know, and then they wanted to charge me, as I said, with desertion and four different charges. And they were trying to put me into prison for seven years. That's right. And so they, so you, you did what is a right to all soldiers, which is fill out a conscience objector packet and have it reviewed. They come back immediately. And that is supposed to be a long process. It's supposed to go through a very thoughtful review. You're supposed to be interviewed. Um, it, it, they automatically from the start decided we are not approving this. This is bullshit. So they come back to you, you know, like the next day saying it's rejected. It was rejected, meaning that you had to deploy like the next day. Um, but then you took this weekend where you didn't show up to where they, everyone in your unit was getting on a plane to go to Iraq. Um, you were home with your wife and then you came back on Monday. Your unit was gone, correct? They had left to Iraq, but you had all these charges against you. Yes, that is correct. When I turned that in that Monday morning mm -hmm. and I asked them what I should do, what I should do. And they said, well, just, you know, turn this in here to us. You, you uh, continue to work on your packet. You report back to us at the uh, evening formation and we'll let you go home. And then the next day I got that rejection for my CO packet and they were filing charges. You're going through everything that you were supposed to. Um, in fact, you know, Amnesty International called you a prisoner of conscience because you, quote, took reasonable steps to secure release from military obligations, meaning that you were doing everything correctly, everything that's in UCMJ and your rights as a soldier and procedurally, administratively, everything that you were supposed to do. But then it was like almost like a setup, you know, like they're like, you got out of the, you successfully got out of the deployment by putting in this packet, even though they rejected it. Um, and so they, but they knew that you weren't going to go. They knew you had taken your stand. You had uh, essentially refused deployment, but with your uh, justification of being a conscientious objector. But then they like threw the book at you. They gave you a general court martial, which is the most severe kind of court martial, and seven years in jail. They were trying to throw at you. Why do you think they? Why do you think they were throwing the book at you at, like that? Why do you think that you had already served in Iraq? You, uh, you know, you got awards there. You were an NCO. You were a stand-up soldier. You were everything you were supposed to be in the military. But because you dared say, "I'm not going to go do this again." they could have very easily just, you know, kicked you out in a CO or even just tried to give you some other kind of minor disciplinary procedure uh, for not going. But they really tried to come out with you with every single thing they could. Why do you think they did that? Well, <laughs> there's a variety of reasons. And I think the main one, I was an NCO, you know, and I wasn't just a young first-time enlistee. And... You know, I was 40 years old at the time, was more mature as a, as a man or as a person. And also, I was an NCO. I'd already proved myself. They had put me on the list to get promoted to staff sergeant. So, I mean, I'd already met all the requirements for my next promotion. And they knew I was right. 
and I hate to use this word, but the stature I had in the military as an older NCO with more experience than, say, a 20-year-old, and they couldn't have me telling them, you know, because even while I was there, I remember watching all the news shows that, you know, when we did get a break and got to a place where there was some television reception, I was watching what they were putting on the news shows and showing everybody dates and i'm like well that is absolute bullshit because we're not doing anything of that you know of that nature they're just outright lying to the american people you know because they try to print it up like we were storming the hill and doing all this heroic stuff and it was nothing like that right so they were scared of your influence over younger soldiers who may be having the same types of questions as you uh soldiers who respected you who looked up to you uh and who would take your opinion about things seriously. So you think that they threw the book at you because they didn't want it to spread. Yeah, yeah. They knew that what I may do might have influence on other people that were in. And they, if they allowed me to to make that kind of statement, that would open the door for other people to go, okay, yeah, how should we go back? And they didn't want that. They didn't. And that is one of the biggest things that caused a lot of anger in me is because they spent all this time talking about the seven army values and included in those supposed to be honor and integrity and it was like there's nothing honorable or there's no integrity in anything that we're doing over here uh, no we were just there to get the oil i mean and i don't know if you ever heard of smedley butler but he was a highly decorated marine mm-hmm. spent 33 years in marine corps and he wrote his uh story about his time he said i spent 33 years as muscle for uh, big corporations that's all i was there for and then i mean and the judge in the court when we were in the she asked me uh sergeant benderman do you just want to be released from the military i said that's it just let me go home and i'll be out of your hair you know that's basically what i told him and when she asked me that the the rear detachment nco and co they jumped up and ran out of the courtroom, and I know they called the rear detachment NCO, you know, and they come in and shut that down. They were going to see me do some time behind bars one way or another, you know. They couldn't let me not go. They couldn't let me go with not spending time behind bars. Right, and so your your court-martial happens. They end up sentencing you uh, to uh, 15 months in military prison. What was... I mean, that must have been a pretty upsetting thing. I mean, you did everything that you were supposed to do after you put your life on the line for a, a year in Iraq and did everything that, that you had within your rights as a soldier. You know, how did you feel getting that sentence and, and having a family as well? Well, <laughs> what, where is that honor and integrity and personal courage that they've always talked about? You know, the American way, we're supposed to have the higher standard for the world. And here we are doing the exact same shit that we uh, want to hold despots accountable for attacking people that have done nothing to us and stealing their natural resources. Mm-hmm. You know, so how does that make us any better than what you know what what they said Saddam Hussein was doing? So then you served your you served thirteen months of your fifteen month sentence. So now, but then you then you get out, you get chaptered out. You know, they gave you a dishonorable discharge. You know which has since been upgraded. So you lost all your benefits, your retirement, all of that stuff. Um, so you you paid a heavy price for your for your more courageous moral stand. I mean, you lost your retirement, you lost your health benefits, you lost your, you know, your 
pension. Um, you had to serve, you know, 13 months in jail. You were demoted to private. Um, you, you paid a heavy price. Well, it, well, I mean, it cost me everything. The 10 years that I had served, you know, and the, and the 10 years that I would have served to, to retirement. Um, well, actually, at that time, it was only eight years to retirement. But, I mean, wound up costing me, uh, my family, I wound up getting a divorce because the situation was so stressful and out of control that it was completely... <laughs> It threw everything off that I'd ever thought of, if you understand what I'm trying to say. So it cost me everything. My career, my retirement, my, my family, my home. And that that is a really heavy price. Would you have done anything different looking back? Well, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about that. And there is one thing I believe I would have done different. I would have just come right out with a stronger stance of just saying the entire thing was wrong it was illegal we never should have went there to begin with and that's the stand i should have taken i believe i mean i did have moral objections that i had and and based on what our country is supposed to be we're supposed to follow the moral objections in our laws i mean that's what they always preach all the time so and the whole thing was based on a lie I mean, it's obvious. Everyone, uh, most people have admitted that outright now. Everything went against the conscience of everything that I ever thought that this country was supposed to stand for. And Kevin, our, my last question for you is: Today, soldiers in the military—they're, you know, it's, they're in a different situation than we were in, you know, in the immediate aftermath of 9/11, or you know, the little the generation after, in the the height of the really the height of the Iraq War and the height of the Afghanistan War. Soldiers today are a totally new generation. They have a different memory. They don't remember the George W. Bush years. They don't remember how blatantly we were lied to about Iraq. But there is still the great potential for a new war. You know, Trump brought us very close to war with Iran. It seemed almost inevitable. There's all these potential conflicts that could break out under the Biden administration. Based on your experience, what, and, you know, someone who was responsible for leading soldiers in a war, what is your advice to young soldiers who may be starting to have those thoughts about what their job is in the military, what we're doing in other countries and all that? What's your advice to them based on what you based on what you've been through in your experience? Well, if there's anything that I could say that any of them might listen to at all, I would just say you know what's right and wrong. I mean, your parents instilled it in you, you know, you've probably heard it your whole life. They put all these things into our laws for a reason after world war ii in the nuremberg they said just following orders is no longer an option for for service members of any nation that includes us we are the main author authors of that document we wanted that information included in all these law, national and international laws they teach us all this stuff in basic training and people know inherently what's right or wrong unless they're just a complete psychopath and yeah, we may have some of that in the military, uh, but that's a different story. But most people know what the difference between right and wrong is, and it's a tough decision, but you just got to look to see what you can live with. Nice left.